0: Welcome to the Adaptex podcast, where we have conversations with individuals who are building inclusive and accessible products, advocating for inclusion, or excelling in adaptive sports. Our intention is never to speak on behalf of those with disabilities, but rather give them a platform to amplify their voice so you can create more inclusive businesses and environments as well. Today we're joined by Jake Hyken, an inclusive strategy and marketing design specialist with a career that has had him involved with huge companies like Snapchat, Airbnb, and Lyft. He leads projects with a combination of expertise and Lyft experience to guide social impact content strategies. He is passionate about product equity and seeing companies create more inclusion in the design process. Did I do an okay job there? i mean i think i sound pretty cool thanks for the intro awesome jake thanks for joining us today um came across you on linkedin really liked some of the stuff you were posting uh you shared a couple cool projects that you had worked on it was really interesting to me um you helped snapchat introduce uh bitmojis that involve people in wheelchairs correct
1: yeah that's correct i was uh sort of project managing that team with uh, some great individuals uh, partnering around the organization with both the Bitmoji arm of the company, and also um, me acting as the PM from the DEI team at Snapchat. And it was really great because um, we were able to build a product that makes more people feel seen, um, which is, you know, how they want to express themselves, which is as they are um, and have some pride in that and with with some fun and a little fun fact, uh, the first iteration. So the wheelchair that's currently being used on Bitmojis, is designed after my wheelchair
0: awesome <laughs> yeah, yeah people get people give me grief because i don't have a bitmoji but i feel like yeah. i'm like kind of old for that but then a lot a lot of people really like it so but why, why do you think representation in things like that are so important
1: yeah that's a great question you know when we look at you know statistics uh people with disabilities makes up a population of 1 billion people in the world now what is a disability well there's a lot of variants to that and that is Anything from a visible disability, I use a wheelchair, I'm blind, to um, an invisible disability, I'm neurodiverse in some capacity. Um, or what one of my colleagues in the disability space referred to it as neurospicy, which I really like. But, you know, with that, there's a lot of different people that are just not being served, you know, with products. And when you think about how you represent people um, in media and, and programs and products, Um, When you're not showing it, when you're not amplifying it, it perpetuates the cycle that we're not developing for a huge population in the world. And so what ends up happening is because we're not thinking about those people by talking about them, it impacts uh, in a ripple effect all industries in every way. So that's what we see in the movies down to. There's a reason that, you know, people with disabilities are the most underhired minority, um, not just in the United States, but around the world. Um, And it's because people have chosen that the politically correct thing to do, if you come across somebody with a disability, is to not look, to not stare, to not engage, because it's impolite. Um, And I'm here to say to the world, we are here, we exist. You need to see us and you need to listen to us and you need to include us in every aspect of Um, your surroundings.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it's like um, a lot of people think it might be taboo to talk about kind of the profitability of inclusion and accessibility. But to me, because I think a lot of business owners think that they have to sacrifice some degree of success to be more inclusive. But ultimately, inclusion is beneficial from a business standpoint as well. Have Have you kind of seen how those large companies have benefited from these kind of grassroots efforts to Create more inclusive and accessible products.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, this is the thing because you know, what we do as a society is we our brains only have enough capacity to get, you know, the TLDR is what we say, the the short, you know, sort of bio what we think something is. Um, the problem is that there is a lot of nuance in all these situations. So what people hear often with disability is that they are a litigious community because we only know about certain things like the ADA and the civil rights and the hard pushes to get access to just literal you know medical benefits to get access to not being discriminated against um and it's unfortunate you know when we live in a world where um you know an entire population is pushed to the point of doing demonstrations and, and in some cases having to go with a complete legal route to be able to say, I wanna be included. Um, and you know, so that has really stained the brand of disability where it isn't just impacting how businesses engage with it, but also um, people within disabilities uh, in that realm who have disabilities Um, struggle with the identity itself, because it's become such a toxic word. Uh, And a lot of people with disabilities don't even refer to themselves as disabled, because, you know, it they feel that it's such a negative connotation. And so what I like to do, which many of us are doing now is reclaiming that word, putting pride into that word. um, Because whether I like it or not, people are going to experience or see my disability. And so I can't hide behind it. And I know if they were not in front of me they would refer to me as the big d word which is disability or disabled and so i'm owning that as my positive thing it's made me who i am i've navigated through the world my entire life with a disability and so um as to how that impacts companies it's actually also very undiscussed the impact it has Uh, the most notable thing i can think of is we have Googles and and Alexas and Siri um, that we can attribute, you know, all these smart home devices we can attribute to people with disabilities because, for instance, these voice assistants um, were originally developed for um, people with disabilities. Um, So if you're blind or low vision and you can't see what's on your screen, you need your phone or the device to tell you what it is. So all that was actually um, a manifestation of needing to serve, um, and now you look at the future. It's kind of impossible to think what would the world be like today, and what will it be like down the line if we didn't have literally voice assistants. Um, and it is, you know, a huge profitable thing. It's created entirely new industries, and I think that's the thing. Um, there's a really common um, sort of analogous situation that I like to say is that. Um, it's called the curb cut effect. And that's when we designed in the curbs. starting in Berkeley, they're like, huh, people with disabilities need to get up onto a curb. How do we do that? Well, we lower the dip on the corner, people in wheelchairs can roll up and there you go. You have this curb cut. Well, what ended up happening when we designed for people with the most physical limitations, it ended up serving a much broader, um, you know a uh, variety of individuals it helped parents with strollers it helped the elderly who were starting to lose mobility and needed uh, a lower you know uh, a lower uh, barrier to get up it helped with people that were going around with suitcases or male men and women who were trying to do deliveries and so my point that is is that when you design environment spaces and products um, marketing etc um, for people that have the most need you end up serving a larger broader audience and that's called the curb cut effect but what it also translates to is the spending power the financial um you know sort of um farming that you can start to seed and and help a lot of people grow in this disabled economy. The disabled economy is, I believe, one of the largest economies undiscussed in the world. And so in the UK, for instance, they call it the purple dollar. And they've been really progressive on pushing these things. And I recommend to any of your listeners to look up the purple do- dollar and find out some really incredible statistics about the spending power of people with disabilities.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a, it's a really cool stance or at least a perspective of like, when you think of how many products in our environment were designed for accessibility needs and how they just benefit everyone. That's, that's just such a good point to uh, to kind of hammer home. Going off of that um, purple dollar effect, I think there's also that assumption that people with disabilities are always of lower socioeconomic status. So some businesses may believe that there's not really uh, a population to sell to, but that's not the case. Um,
1: that's that's a complex sort of conversation to have because yeah. there's a few things there well yeah statistically we are saying that this is the most underhired minority um so there is a lot of disabled people that um were and are raised in environments where one um the cost of living is is about 30 percent higher to support a disability um, so that's that has implications on families raising people with disabilities and people experiencing it. Um, that takes away from things like education. That takes away. That doesn't even consider the areas and other demographics of your intersectional identity, which can impact your ability to get access to things that can level you up in life. So when you're thinking about that, yeah, the truth is there are a lot of people not by their own doing that are restricted um so a lot of disabled people because they're not able to get gainful employment able to get the equal opportunity at education um we are lowering the chances of having qualified disabled individuals with that said how do you get a qualified individual on in anything somebody has to believe in them somebody has to invest in them and you know we shouldn't just rely on pedigree and and opportunity based on the circumstances that somebody is born into to allow somebody to move forward and level up their own social status in society. Um, You really need to do as a, you know, socially responsible, let's say employer, you know, have programs for training, bring in talent that you're willing to invest in. And that looks at exploring how you would do that with different disabilities
0: as a maybe a slight aside or a little bit of a tangent it's just something that i've been trying to navigate or think through recently but sometimes in the fitness space i see programs for people with disabilities and um, they're exclusively for disabilities and maybe they're free we see a lot of free programs and um, maybe it's just a confirmation bias of me running a for-profit fitness center that includes people with disabilities but to me the idea that everything for people with disabilities should be free uh, has some issues. Do you have any thoughts on that? It seems to perpetuate this like charity model of disability where someone like me has to swoop in and save you. Whereas I want to empower people with disabilities to participate equally.
1: Yeah. And so I think that's a, you know, it's an interesting sort of, you know, positioning of questions here, because You know, there there are several things we need to consider. We do need to serve a community that doesn't have access, um, you know, uh, to opportunity, that may have neurological spiciness to them, um, that have physical limitations and what that means for what type of work they are or are not able to perform. Um, And in addition to that, um, you know, we have essentially accepted that people with disabilities have so much opportunity through let's say socially minded conscious enterprise um but here's my news check for everybody listening today there's a real problem when you rely on people doing good that um it's in a lot of ways i very much disagree with the philanthropic model because sure there's good people doing good but is the person writing the check spending the time with the individual? Is it changing their and challenging their own biases about, you know, them being charity versus they're just they're a person? Um, also, one thing I experienced as a kid was I had access to all these different philanthropic things. But the moment I hit 18 and I transitioned into adulthood, suddenly, because I'm not this cute little kid anymore that can help, you know, um fundraise for a nonprofit, I'm suddenly, you know, um booted to the ground to, to booted to the street because I no longer can be a beneficiary of these nonprofits because it's much harder to get nonprofits going for you know just adults living into their lives. And so there's really a ceiling that you know is really hard to break through. Um and when you are in a position where you're dependent on nonprofits, it becomes um very um debilitating to get access to the world. And so I think that Um, We need to think of it from both sides. There's a need for uh, philanthropic organizations, but there's also a need for profit organizations because we need to hold for profit organizations across the board accountable to say um, it shouldn't matter who my product is for. I'm still building a company um, to include everybody. And that is equity. And I think, you know, it's, um, this is how I say, you know, it's, it's, there's a great, you know, saying I learned from, you know, my old manager, which is, you know, there's inclusion and there's equity. You know, inclusion is we're throwing a dance for our school and we invite everybody. Great. Right. Well, philanthropy is sort of like that. You know, it's where we're making sure that people have opportunities to get the invitation to the dance. But what's the point of going to the dance if you're not getting an equitable being opportunity being asked to dance? So, you know, the the real differences of inclusion and equity is inclusion is being invited, but equity is asking the person to dance. And, you know, it really what happens is, is that you find everybody has this mindset of, oh, I'm going to invite them, but nobody feels it's their responsibility to ask them to dance. So still, even in what is perceived as inclusive environments, ends up being uh, fictitious because you have um, people in uh, it's going, well, now that they're here, that's great, but it's not my problem. I've done enough. And that's the problem with philanthropy is that a lot of the times like, I've done enough. Um, And that's why, you know, uh organizations that are for profit go, well, they're bringing them to the dance. Like, we're just here to party. Yeah,
0: yeah I like that analogy a lot. I just like, sometimes I think of my gym model and how I want other gyms to exist. And I just like. Personally, I think where I'm at right now is that I would want financial assistance to be needs-based, less than diagnostic-based, because then yeah. it kind of opens up like a okay, well, how dis disabled do you have to be to get financial assistance? Is it is ADHD enough to get access to that scholarship or to that free program, or do you need a physical disability? Whereas I'd just prefer it's a little universal and that businesses are flexible in terms of supporting the clients that need greater assistance, but it's not necessarily contingent on a specific diagnosis. But I like I like how you described like inclusion versus equity. That, that's a really cool uh, analogy that I think will resonate with a lot of people. And when uh, you're thinking, sorry. No, when, no, go ahead.
1: When you're thinking of the gym, like I think it's a perfect example that relates to this analogy, which is um, there's several factors that should be considered, you know, for instance, maybe there's a needs based scholarship, you know, but, you know, that's, you know, based on like certain factors. Do they have a career? Do they not have a career? You know, maybe it's not a full scholarship, but it's saying that they're be, they're paying a monthly amount equitably compared to um, the people that, you know, what they can afford. Um, but there's also other things. It's not just about money, which people are always concerned about when it's about inclusion with disabilities. You know, a gym is a space. It's the dance. But, you know, it's not being asked to dance at a gym. It's can you use the equipment? So are you buying equipment that has different adaptive mo- uh, modalities that can work for a range of, you know, mobility? It's about just spacing the equipment, a certain spacing apart. So I'm invited to the gym, but can I navigate through the gym? you know, that is equity too. That's the being asked to dance just by your placement of your machines is part of the equation of, um, you know, I'm giving them the opportunity to dance. Um, It's not
0: it's not enough just to open the doors, but, um, you also have to have the systems in place and, Even from, like, we talk about accessibility being multidimensional, like, it's not just the physical environment. Like, if you can get into the gym and there's a countertop that's at the right height for a wheelchair user by the ADA standards, but the person at the front desk isn't kind to you or, like, doesn't care about your experience, then that's not really... Equity, like you said, it's not an. Equal yeah, experience. I
1: mean, there's so many times I go to a place they have a lower counter, but you know they make me talk to them at the higher counter. They're they seem unwilling or you know unaware that you know the social behavior to make me feel you know more included would be get eye to eye with me like you are with everybody else. All you have to do is take four steps to your right to get to this lower counter. I go to bars with my friends and there's always that one accessible spot in the bar, you know, at the bar, which is frustrating because it's like they build all these high tops and go, whoa, we're only going to get one person, if any, tonight at our bar. We'll give them this one spot. And what is that spot usually used for? It's used for waiters um, to essentially stack their, their supplies and their materials because it's at an accessible height for them that feels out of the way. So, you know, it's a mindset shift as well.
0: You talked about uh, kind of growing up and what your experience was like, but you, you didn't dive into it too deeply. So, what was what was your childhood and and school experience like? You went to university as well, so you have a, a degree uh, from university. Yeah, yeah, as well.
1: yeah. Let's go back to trauma. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> um, no, so okay, so I was born, um, and a few weeks after birth, um, we noticed that I had some weakness. You know, that was abnormal. Um, with an average, you know, infant my age. And so um, there were sort of some flags being raised and they started to recognize that it was continuing and essentially was figured out, you know, we're talking like the 80s right now, that um, that there is some sort of abnormality with my muscle tissue. What it was, we were not um, efficient at that time to be able to test. We didn't know a lot about muscular you know, conditions. Um, the tests were super expensive if we did know about anything. So it basically was just like, all right, let's monitor, but continue his life as moving forward. Um, You know, I did start walking. I started walking with a wobble. I had lower muscle tone. um, and But, you know, I was a kid that was active in the way that I was able to be. But it did um, transcend into my experiences differently, Um, you know. I always wonder, was it because, you know, I was not athletic because of my disability or I was a little gay kid that I was like hanging out with all the girls, not the guys who were playing sports at recess, um, you know, maybe, maybe you know, there are components of both. But, you know, I remember going to the playground and never, like never being looked at by the boys, like never being talked to saying, oh, you want to come play ball with us at recess? Like they just ignored me entirely. Um, and, you know, because of that, you know, schools in public schooling, yeah, there's now a responsibility to build courses that are for people with special needs. Um, but I think that, you know, with the funding and with the training, at least in the era that I was growing up, that was limited thinking. For instance, like, oh, let's put Jake in this course with all these other ranges of disabilities and treat them all the same. And and the problem is, is that with disabilities having such a um, wide variety of uh, presentations, um, I was being talked to and treated the same way that another individual was when our challenges were very different. And so I felt often misplaced in these environments because, you know, I'd be 10 years old with people that had a a cognition ability of somebody that's four years old and being talked to the same way as them. And so I really feel that we need to be mindful about how we develop these programs Um, You know, I'm fortunate to grow up in a good public schooling system, but, you know, it always was like I was very aware. I was like, oh, why am I in here? Like, it doesn't make sense. Why? Why are they addressing my needs the same way as that person's needs? Um, You know, and so as I got older, I went into junior high. That's when my disability was really starting to kick in with adolescence. Um, In seventh grade, I grew 11 inches uh, and my muscles just could not keep up. Um, And so at that point. Um, a lot of atrophying and contractions. And then one day right before, two weeks before eighth grade, broke my leg, was too weak to use crutches. So I started using a wheelchair. And that's what started the onset of me being a wheelchair user, going in and out through my teens until I was pretty much full-time in college. Um, And, you know, during that time, now fast forward, we started in the 80s. Now we're in the early 2000s. And um, medicine was starting to really gain a rapid flux in um, progress in, in how they were, you know, devices and testing and, and all this stuff. So it was really interesting. I had a moment in high school where they misdiagnosed me and they're like, we think you could have um, a form of muscular dystrophy, which is um, potentially like deadly. We don't think you're going to live, you know, very much further after 18, you know, being 16 years old, this was like, or 15 years old, this was like, what's the point? This is the end of the world." all these dreams. And I just kind of gave up. I got really depressed. And then um, finally at another go, okay, hold up. You know, here is a doctor making a bad call, just saying things, not realizing the impact they have. We say there's similarities of certain, you know, uh, certain attributes, but that doesn't mean that's what you have. You need a concrete diagnosis. And the reality is genetic testing is only 10 years away. My recommendation is go live your life wait a decade and, you know, we should be able to diagnose you. And so that's essentially what ended up happening. I had to get out of my depression. I went to school. My parents were very strict on the fact that the school that I chose had to be within a certain radius of a hospital. They were very protective and all I wanted was to get out and go party, um, go do some keg stands and all that. So I went to school, I partied my butt off. I tried to like block it out of my head. I had my intersexual experience where I ended up coming out in college. Um, and then I, um, it was on actually later on, I was about to justify with insurance, get it, which getting anything justified in our medical system is messed up and it's really hard. And so we basically have built a case for me to get this new testing for a full DNA sequencing. And I was just like, this is cool. And then my doctor was like, hey, there's one more idea. I think we should do this free test and see what it is and, and see and use that as sort of bait to can make sure that you get approved for genetic sequencing. great let's do it and ironically after years and years of testing building a case to get this huge test done they found something and on my 28th birthday i got the phone call after doing testing at the nih in, in bethesda dc area um they had confirmed my disability and it was i think in terms of longevity and opportunity like i have peaked i've seen the worst of it now i just have to live as is and maintain and um here i am you know uh, in my mid thirties, just sort of navigating my life. And I was able to exhale and focus on me and my career and all these different things. And, um, I suddenly was like, what's your passions? And I became a backpacker traveled and now I've been doing all these fun things and building my career. That was a lot. So Brendan, take over uh,
0: <laughs> a lot to unpack there. Yeah. And I, I didn't mean to make you, uh, relive traumatic experiences. I was, um, more so just interested in whether there were, specific experiences growing up that kind of influenced the career path that you're on now, I guess? Like, was there a certain time where you thought like, oh, I really want to get into like content creation strategies and promoting inclusion and, and accessibility through like the tech space? What Was there anything specific that kind of influenced you in that direction?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we all have these, you know, pie-in-the-sky dreams of what you want one day. When I grow up, I want to be X. And so mine was always an actor. And so, uh, you know, from an early age, I recognized my creative abilities. I was in theater. Um, And then, you know, I didn't come out of a top school. Um, And so it kind of came down to, um, you got to get a job when you come out of school, you know. And so I started Just taking the jobs that were in front of me. And um, that was sort of this catalyst that it turned into um, because of my fortunate thing, which uh, I'm very extroverted and I have no problem, you know, being a personality in the room and, you know, making conversation with people. I was able to take on little projects here and there. Um, And so I found entryways into before a time that diversity, equity and inclusion, DEI was in organizations where I would find projects that I could help build, which started at Lyft when I got in there. It was a small company that nobody knew at the time and it blew up while I was there. Um, And I was doing really cool projects for people with disabilities and all these great things. Um, But I was not there originally for that. I was there for social media, but that was kind of like, you know, finding ways that I could do the thing to get paid, but also do the things that I'm passionate about. And as I got more um, foundational support and belief in my abilities, I was able to take on more projects and more and more and more. And that's what sort of was the catalyst into becoming an expert in this arena. Um, Do I think that I'm exactly where I want to be in my career? No, like I said, I wanted to be an actor. But um, what it has done is it's manifested things that I'm doing, um, where I can combine things that are passion for me. So I'm really proud of the fact that I've been featured in content and showing off independence and personality in videos for marketing. I've been really, and doing it authentically from the perspective of how I want disabled people to be perceived and shown, not from how um, an able person feels we need to appear. Um, so, you know, do I still hope that one day I get that really cool role? That'd be awesome. But... What it's done is having that pie-in-the-sky dream has sort of been um sort of my North Star that's brought me to really cool experiences. And always saying yes, not because this experience is the thing, but having the vision that doing more things that align with my personal um, values and agenda and interest can bring me closer to a dream that I want. And I think that a lot of people operate in this world where you're not hedge fund kids and you would do those things and you just have to lay the bricks to go in a direction you want to go to.
0: What would you say was the, your favorite project that you've worked on?
1: Mm. Um, When I was at Airbnb, um, I met some great people that were making travel experiences for people with disabilities. Um, And um, you know, not only was I connecting with them, but I was also connecting with GoPro. And so all of a sudden, I always say 27 was my most millennial year yet. Um, because um I had just got like a boost of confidence. I had been working really hard, I had a lot of financial security, so I was less scared of the what if I don't get what I want. Um, you know, to be honest, financial independence is empowering because you can say yes, you can say no, and you can sort of project in the world that, you know, I don't need you, but you want me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so with that, um, I made some partners with an organization um, to build more accessible uh, disabled trip experiences uh, with this organization called Wheel the World. Um, I also partnered with GoPro and they sponsor me to go backpacking just me and my wheelchair um, and a camera. Um, And that was really cool. Um, And, you know, I just was free in this moment you know i was going out in the world and challenging myself in a way physically and emotionally that i've never done before and was extremely vulnerable but it was completely empowering where i was like here i am not only on camera but changing perception um and really feeling like wow i'm doing things that i've always set out to do and uh that that was just the funnest year of my life um and i hope i get more opportunities to be that guy again
0: absolutely that project at airbnb that was allowing uh house owners to add accessibility needs questions during that intake process
1: yeah so the gig economy is interesting right because it gives an opportunity for uh any person in in the economy to say i want to make an extra buck let me use what resources i have um to to make money when it comes to housing that means um you know you you know, when you have like a, a public company, they have to adhere to certain laws of the ADA. Um, but when you have, you know, a gig economy contractor sort of labeling, those laws do not apply. So for an individual with physical physical needs to be met, you know, it's like, I know there are certain things I need and certain things that don't matter to me regarding my disability. So what I came in in there and I did was I partnered with our trust and safety team and I looked at the product and I said, let's evaluate what we can do to get more people with disabilities to use these stays, um, you know, that would work for them and, you know, without having to change the entire business model of Airbnb. So I worked with the teams and basically we built filters where you could go around your house as a homeowner and say, okay i know my my home has step free access i know that my home have beds that are at a certain height that anybody can transfer to um i know that my home has a smart device that can help somebody with certain needs and so what you were able to do was empower the homeowners to allow more people with different needs to say here's what my house can offer you with your needs and then the people with disabilities know that I don't need the gamut, I just need what will work with my needs to go th- through the platform and get a lot more opportunities of states that they want to go to. Um, and so it empowered both the gig economy homeowners and the disabled people who want to use Airbnb.
0: Yeah, it's nowhere near the scale that you're referring to or that Airbnb would accomplish there. But it's... When I was reading about it, it kind of reminded me of a project that I'm hoping to work on in terms of like endurance sports, so 5Ks, marathons, triathlons, and I think a lot of the times race directors don't have any experience in this space, so they don't even know what questions to ask, um, or they don't know what information to gather during the registration process, and when you don't gather the right information, then you can't be proactive in terms of how you cater the environment to the needs of the individuals but at the same time you also have to encourage race directors to be more transparent about their course. Um, I run pushing a wheelchair so if for us if a course has a ton of potholes or a ton of turns it makes it not super suitable for us and I'm not gonna ask the race director to change the course but it would just be helpful if I knew beforehand. So we're working on strategies to make road races more inclusive and accessible. Um, And I think one of the ways to do so is just to encourage people to be more transparent with the characteristics of their race. Um, To pick up your bib, do you have to go into a building and does that building have accessible entrances, et cetera? And when you're registering, um, one thing that's kind of an interesting puzzle to solve is we have different categories in races, top overall male, top overall female. Uh, there's different gender categories now. We have pushroom wheelchair. We have Team Hoyt duo that like I run with. Some races are adding a neurodivergent category, uh, but not everyone with neurodivergence wants to be recognized in that category. So it's yeah. asking the people ahead of time, if you are the fastest person with a diagnosed neurodivergence, do you want to win that category or do you not want to be recognized in front of everyone as the fastest person? Uh, athlete with a neurodivergence there. Uh, So it's just asking the right questions, gathering the right information, but uh, kind of spearheading that lead, like need people like you to help someone like me ask the correct questions.
1: Yeah, you know, I actually love this point you're bringing up because, you know, um, there's so much nuance to this. You know, it's, okay, well, we want to do a race. Well, we know it's paved roads, but then you're somebody who lives in this world and you're like, but hey, paved roads doesn't mean how are they maintained, is it smooth? You know, um, and I am working on a consulting project um, for a community in Portugal and, um, you know, part of this contract with this development is that it is, you know, they work with partners that have experience to building according to the laws, you know, and I was saying to my friend who works at one of these types of firms, um, she goes, well, I don't understand, like, what's your role in this? Because, you know, we have people that, you know, can see the laws and we can just plug and drop things in to our schematics and our blueprints and just build it. And I'm like, so like, what's the point of you being involved? Like, you know, and I love that question because when they asked me that, as my friend who sees the way I live, I actually, you know, kind of was taken back because I was like, interesting that... That's the argument versus like, oh, yeah, like the more the merrier, you know. um, And I, I never said this to her, but the, the argument is this, because I really needed to. And sometimes I'm cut off guard and need to think about it. And I was like, what is the argument? Like, why, Jake, he's disabled. Like, why does he need to be there? And the the argument is this. Sure, we have laws, but th- we need to understand that those are very general best practices. What we lose in you know, creating environments, experiences, etc., um, is the day-to-day experience. And the only way you're gonna get the day-to-day experience is from people who live with disabilities and um, people who um, have some sort of um, daily interaction with people with disabilities, because there are things that are not in the laws um, that, you know, are never considered. So potholes would be an example. If you're in, in an environment, well, okay well we made a wide enough doorway but does it need the push buttons those didn't really exist when the ada came around or the internet well the internet was before you know the ada but so like does the internet have to be or do we use what's called the wcag guidelines which are just guidelines they're not law because this was bef- came after the ada and when you think of environment you know okay well we made the hallways wide enough all these different things where do i come in and i go okay, well, that's great. You have a roll-in shower um, with grab bars, but where's the um, faucets? Can I reach it? You know, I sometimes find uh, it's too high to reach or um, the shower chair is at the other end or, you know, the soap dispenser is put really high up or a mirror is just out of my way. Um, And so just because laws are there on basic blueprint schematics, you need to talk to the person and, and different people with disabilities or an expert of disabilities to go how do people live with a disability in the environments that we're building because yeah. they don't go hand in hand they are separate yeah. conversations
0: you had a quote that kind of reiterates that in something that I was reading beforehand you said like society is obsessed with defining a person by what they lack but people design what they perceive not what they want to see in the world so like if you don't necessarily like you mentioned if you don't see these challenges if you aren't hands-on and like fully uh in the arena then you can't even begin to understand why the ada guidelines are just the base
1: it's the base and what happens is you know frankly i should know more of this because i know look the the first civil rights movements was section 504 led by judy human who recently passed away who was a mentor to me um and was this phenomenal push of a a a, uh, like 20-something day sit-in in San Francisco's capital that ended up making waves and all these people with disabilities got the first legal rights for people with disabilities, which inevitably led, and that was in the 70s, this led to um, the ADA. Now, the ADA devised and developed in the 90s uh, or, or affirmed in 1991 was great i need to know who was you know who was involved but it's also how you're looking at the world at that time then um and you know the world continues to change you know we continue to learn more and expand what what is neurodivergence you know do what is ADD versus you know down syndrome do we put them in the same category of ability and mobility you know it's it, it, it it's a complexity of continuing to redefine, and expand on definitions. Um, And so I think that the ADA um, and all thought around it needs to be living documents. We're definitely due for updates that are on a much bigger scale. It was an amazing first wave and historic moment. But um, yeah, the landscape is changing and it's great that we're having the podcasts that are literally featured about this because the reality is um people go oh the ADA is done and a lot of people just stop talking about it for 30 something years.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's been I I had a conversation with um a guest Brad McKennal a couple episodes ago and he just talked about how there's aspects of the ADA guidelines that aren't even relevant anymore uh anymore stuff with having like talk to text type of telephones or kind of uh, different technology that like isn't even relevant anymore with the addition of the smartphone, but it's still in there requiring, requiring quote unquote companies to, to have that as an option. So um, yeah, it's just the floor. Um, it's definitely not the ceiling. So hopefully, like you said, it is a living document that's in responding to how things change since this is, or since my, um, allegiance and interest is kind of in like the fitness and health and fitness space uh, we've probably already covered some things that kind of answer this question but um what do you think the fitness industry as a whole could do to become more inclusive and accessible
1: love this question because um it drives me bonkers that really the only way to have, for me to have true access to, you know, daily working out, or not even daily, because it's what insurance improves, is physical therapy. Um, I don't personally love physical therapy because these are, you know, trained people that are more injury focused, area focused, not thinking of the mindset of going to the gym. Of this is your entire body that we're thinking of holistically, and so. Um, when you're given a 20 minute session by your insurance insurance or 40 minutes, you could spend that entire time just doing stretches, you know, you don't have time to make it a leg day or upper body day. And so, you know, when I go to gyms, gyms are, you know, let's, I want to see these machines do- designed to be used by multiple varying disabilities. What I also want to see is that the environment is welcoming me to go into. That's not just the placement of the machines, but, you know, things that would be great for me. I want to make sure there's always a shower that I can use at a gym, I'm um, not an afterthought. Oh, we just threw in a chair. I want to be able to use the saunas there. And the responsibility falls upon me to go to a gym and say, hey, how would I do this? And they're like, oh, I don't know. You're the first person I asked. And when you're not doing giving training to the staff, when you're not building an environment that is, oh great, we we gave them a makeshift shower after we built it, you know, that isn't going, well, if we have people with disabilities who pay our membership, you know, the same as everyone else, how do we give them an equal, equitable experience there? Um, and so, you know, I'm talking Equinox right now, which has one of the most astronomical um uh rates to go there. And what drives me mad is like I'm like wait so you want me to spend 300 a month and i can't use the majority of your products and the majority of your environment why should i be paying that amount um and so um and you don't have the training to say well we can adapt it or we can we can figure it out for you and so when i think about gyms it's like you're asking somebody to spend the same amount of money for a tenth of the product and so to me, I'm like, how is that fair?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's it's like, I'm living in an echo chamber with some of the things you said there. So uh, confirmation bias is a wonderful feeling. Um, But like you mentioned PT, uh, and how it's not always the environment you want to be in. And that's something that I talk about. Sometimes I'm not a physical therapist, and I don't pretend to be but for a lot of our clients, not only do they age out of PT, once they turn 18, uh, they no longer get through their school. But it's like, some of our clients post-injury or post-stroke, they don't necessarily want to be in PT. They want to get back to an environment that they were in before. Uh want to kind of get back to a sense of normalcy. And PT, like you said, always just feels like rehab. Um, it's like people want to just exist within the regular communities that they um, can be in. So uh, well, that's why I, I think like, that's why we're passionate about creating more inclusive fitness environments. So
1: Yeah, and so what's really interesting about PT is like they focus on – you're injured or you're sickly. And what happens is is that I'm like, wait a second. So I have to be injured, which I'm not, um or I have to be looked at as like I'm sickly. I'm like, I'm not sick. I'm I'm me. And you know, what I want my gym experience to be is like I want to stay fit and healthy like everybody else. My definition of fit is different, but like I want a gym to be like my release of frustration, my my motivation of my daily routine. And so I want it to be cool and fun and and the reality is, is that physical therapy does not create that environment, nor is that their purpose. Um, yeah. So I think that's something to consider as well.
0: It's like the medical model versus the social model. And I mean, PT needs the medical model. That's what yeah. insurance and everything relies on. But you had mentioned in in a previous interview as well, that like, you kind of view disability as situationally uh, dependent. And that's that's basically what the social model of disability is. It's not the fact that you're using a wheelchair. It's the fact that there's steps that are preventing you from getting where you need to go that is the disability in of itself. So um, kind of creating environments that account for all individuals' abilities is uh, something we hope to promote.
1: Yeah, and I also I also wanted to say that, you know, I think what's really important is that kind of when we were talking about what disability products, um, you know, um, you know, do we not realize like it stimulates the economy and things like that? I think it's really important to be like, just because something was invented, like you should know that CRE was invented for disabilities. You should also know that, um, that the Pilates reformer table was invented for physical therapy. And now as somebody wanting to use it, because it's actually one of the best devices for me to move with my body. I love the reformer. Um, but guess what? The reformer has now been kicked out of physical therapy. So you can't even get that paid for or approved. And now it is a very costly, costly, specialized class you get to take every so often as a um as a kind of gift to myself to switch it up from time to time. So here's this device that was designed purposefully for people with different mobility, and yet now it's been priced out where it can't even be used by those people. And it's just adopted by able people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a uh, that's an unfortunate reality, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I think the I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, I'm glad I reached out. Uh, I think this episode was packed with a lot of great things that hopefully people can take and apply to whatever industry they're in. Um, the inclusion and accessibility starts at the beginning of the design process. I hope that's one thing that people take away. Like it can't exactly. be retroactively exactly. done yeah yeah it's not it, not done retroactively it's it's has to be at the forefront of thinking,
1: and I think that's the best thing take away from this entire podcast uh right here right now is um so people are going, well, what now? what do I do? it is exactly that, which is it should be talked about and implemented every stage of the process so whatever your listeners are deciding to do with their business or the company they should be asking these questions from the day one of ideation and saying what steps do i need to take at each part of the process to build it correctly inclusively equitably and so that means um, working with, you know, specialists, bringing in disabled voices to give their feedback, paying them, because often people like to get feedback for free with people with disabilities. And and I think it's really important that at every iteration of whatever stage anyone is at um, to make sure that it is a part of the process. So well said.
0: Absolutely. Jake, hopefully next time I see you, it's in a movie or a commercial, so you can recognize that, uh, that dream or aspiration of yours. But uh, I appreciate you talking today. Thanks for joining me.
1: Hey, Brendan, thanks so much for having me, and can't wait to listen to this.
0: Thank you for listening to the Adaptex podcast. Our effort to amplify the ideas of our guests and create more inclusive and accessible industries is futile unless these episodes reach a larger audience. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please leave us a rating or a review on whichever platform you use. And if you would like to learn more about Adaptex, the course that we teach to health and fitness professionals and the projects that our organization is working on, you can subscribe to our newsletter through our website, www.adaptex.org. Until next Monday.